0: Welcome to The Imperfect Brand, the only business podcast that listens to real business leaders talk about running real businesses, so we can all benefit from the sort of hard-won knowledge that makes it easier to do something difficult. I'm Benjamin Catley-Richardson, your host, and today I'm speaking with Andy Smith, Managing Director of Core Data Limited. Core Data provides accurate, up-to-date business information for organizations looking to drive their B2B marketing with data. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. Thank you for coming along.
1: You're welcome, hello.
0: I have a question just to get us kick started. I'd like to do something a bit off, uh, off the cuff, just to break the ice. Um, and in the world of data, I think um, we can get kind of uh, like caught up in this idea of big data and it's very fashionable and trendy, but how do we tell the difference between useful data and vanity data
1: gosh um, okay that, that's really quite tricky actually because um one person's useful data is another person's vanity and that's one of the slight problems I, I think uh generally speaking though the data which will allow you to make better decisions to make informed decisions to drive your business in a uh, a better direction or in a more timely way uh, clearly is is powerful that's fueling your business moving forward of whatever nature Vanity data by and large is stuff where you, you talk about how many clicks you've got or something like that ilk, which doesn't necessarily help you do anything. And it doesn't necessarily tell you anything wise from which you can make your next set of decisions or or steer your next actions. Uh, so I suppose it'd be the ones where if you, if you ever find yourself being a bit swamped with data, try and figure out which three you'd take to your desert island with you, which three bits of data you'd take. And the rest of them are probably to say the least peripheral, if not utterly vanity, they're at least peripheral.
0: What do you think is the, the sort of the worst kind of sin in terms of when people reach for data? What's the, their worst sin that they do first when they're just kind of overwhelmed by data and it's just like, oh, it answers all the questions
1: well i mean it depends on quite where one means what one means by data in core data's case of course we tend to be talking about company and contact names and addresses and things like that so it's actionable contact information but of course data can mean lots of other things too and and it often does so it can be talking about uh levels of interest on different products or as i mentioned a minute ago numbers of clicks through on web page links and things like that all of those things are data if we're concentrating on the marketing business to business type marketing data I think um, the biggest sin people tend to have is liking the idea of having lots and, and lots isn't necessarily good uh, it, it just means that you actually have a big job of managing it and quite probably much of it is out of date and unhelpful anyway and it would probably be more sensible to pare it down to what you actually can make practical use of in the near future uh, and maintain and love enough that you're able to keep getting the value uh, so so I suppose that would be my um, my word of caution would be more isn't necessarily good unless you really have the time and infrastructure to be able to derive the value from it and to love it as it as it needs to be to be able to keep getting that value going forward oh and incidentally to keep it legal too you can't just you can't just stack it up and keep using it you have to you have to maintain all sorts of other bits of compliance and so on as well
0: and in your, I mean, I think you've been, would I be right in saying you've been at core data for 29 years, is, is that right?
1: Yeah, it is. It, it does feel like uh, uh, worse than any prison sentence. And um, yet yeah, I've been, been at core data now so for nearly all of its life. Core data is about 30 years and I was a few weeks late. So, yeah, 29 years.
0: And what's the biggest changes? If you had to say the one, the one biggest change, let's make it simple the biggest change that you've seen in the way that people have used data over that period of time? Obviously, you're talking about you're using and you're providing contact data. Um, But what's the the biggest shift in the way that people have used data in those 30 years?
1: So in reality, this is very much at the very beginning of this. So my particular background prior to Core Data was, uh, and I'm an IT techie, I'm very much a lapsed IT techie now. I wouldn't qualify for the badge, but uh, at the time I was a techie. I was building computers and programming and things like that. And actually, I suppose the biggest single change was the arrival of technology about thirty years ago into the workplace. Um, And at the time, most list organisations supplying data in the way that we do today were actually doing it with things called Cheshire labels which were kind of computerized but they were printed out on non-sticky paper which then had to be guillotined up and manually stuck onto envelopes with glue and and this is an altogether different type of world uh, than the one we're in today where you know mail merging takes place with uh, handwritten type effects if that's what you want it to be uh, and the power of the computer has certainly continued throughout that time but the biggest single impact was about 30 years ago as IT was becoming more accessible from a desktop rather than needing a mainframe. somewhere.
0: It has made it easier to make mistakes though, hasn't it?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and, and this is why I think I have to put my hand up and say I'm most definitely not really still a qualified techie anymore. My, my technical skills are well and truly left behind and I'm just a user these days, albeit one perhaps who uh, has just enough awareness about technology to be able to ask my technical team awkward questions sometimes and and make some uh unreasonable but nonetheless fairly reasonable expectations of them
0: i think it's good though to know to know your own imperfections kind of bring it back to to our podcast you know you you've seen that movement over the 30 years but you've also seen it kind of grow out of of all sort of ideas that might have um, been there 30 years ago nobody could have maybe imagined how far we would have gone down this route
1: but i think Sorry, go on. So you're absolutely right. But in fact, it was almost the instigating factor uh, was the uh, prior to Core Data when myself and the other founder, I suppose, uh, were both working in an IT company providing IT solutions. It was a frustration at that time that actually we were often helping people and helping them spend large amounts of money sometimes, but we were helping them put in place systems to be able to improve their business. But one of the things that broke our heart was then all too often they relied on it chugging around with poor data and as a result those systems we would lovingly crafted didn't deliver the true value that they should have done and it was one of the reasons and one of the impetuses for the step that we made into trying to improve people's data rather than continuing to write software and plug together computers
0: and, and looking at that process so you're sort of seeing how people have adapted to the use of data and then also maybe made those mistakes in terms of thinking data solves everything. Looking at your own past, and you know, we're here to talk about our own imperfections and reinforce that idea that it's only by that observation process that we can kind of learn in the right direction, which is really what failing is. What do you have from your career history that we can talk about today? What's your imperfect anecdote?
1: Um, yeah, I had a little funk around this because I knew you were gonna ask. Um, I, I reflected back on something again quite early on although it's a theme that has then carried on, which was a sense of um, ignorance and uh, ostrich-like behavior on on my part and on the organization's part, where we knew what we were doing and our technology was great our product was good and our relationship with our customers was excellent. Um, And we were doing many things, but one of the things we were doing is we were providing phone numbers, addresses, and names of companies and individuals within them, but also quite a few fax numbers at the time. Uh, which people were at that time using to do fax broadcasting to sell their surplus stock or whatever it might be. Um, And one of the things I suppose the the Auschwitz behaviour I'm referring to is we didn't really perceive that that was likely to be changing in the speed that it eventually did Uh, because it was about uh, the uh, change of the millennium I suppose. Um, New legislation came around called the fax preference service which meant that people had an easy, accessible, free way of saying they didn't want to get faxes anymore. Um, and actually what that meant was lots of people immediately said, well, stop these marketing factors coming through to me, which makes sense. I, I totally understand and respect that. Uh, but prior to the FPS being there, we've been very respectful of people, but they had to take the initiative and come and tell us themselves manually. Whereas the FPS created this centralized mechanism where they could do it and it uh, gained a lot of traction. But what it meant was that Uh, many of our clients who were perhaps marketing agencies doing fact-broadcasting for their clients or big organizations themselves doing their own fact-broadcasting, effectively had to stop using our products almost overnight. And uh, that left quite a significant chunk in our revenue, um, which we had to think quite hard about quite quickly.
0: (laughs) And I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the GDPR process that obviously caught a lot of people out recently. And, um, you know, thinking about the the mistake, if you like, as you called it, an ostrich behaviour, um, l- not looking ahead, not sort of being aware or anticipating the changes that might make, and maybe also not anticipating the sentiment that people might have if they were given the option to opt out of these processes. Um, ha- I have to ask, how did you all respond to GDPR? <laughs> were you prepared?
1: Yeah, actually, we were. Uh, and that's a lot, thanks in large part, actually, to our lessons learned during the fax processing side um, when actually what we ended up doing there was we ended up reacting rather belatedly but we took on board the headaches of suppressing people's numbers who'd asked to be excluded and things and we did that for our clients so we we took on board all of the technical challenge and indeed I suppose all the liability as a result to allow those faxes to still be sent by people by doing the bit that they were going to struggle with and so we took that and we reused that same sort of approach with regard to GDPR uh, long before it became law, so it was very much still a draft. Um, and we, we had one or two advantages. We've uh, had data companies in other European countries. And so uh, looking at this purely from the UK perspective, actually, it are very tempting to say, well, they're not going to change data rules that much. because bluntly most of us don't care that much and the UK as a whole doesn't have a particular problem with the idea of data existing about us and it being used for marketing. There is a line and of course there are some people who do have a problem with it but as a whole society it isn't something we really rail against. That is not the case in mainland Europe at all Uh, partly because some of those other cultures have had a relatively recent experience of living under oppressive regimes where data being held about you in the wrong hands could have very real and very tangible pain. Um, And so whether that be Vichy France, Nazi Germany, East Germany, wherever it might be, the wrong people having data about you was potentially uh, very dangerous and certainly not a good thing. And indeed, the data protection issues that run behind GDPR are, I suppose, most pertinent in some of those other countries like Germany and Spain, where they felt very, very strongly about it. But it's very difficult to argue against it. So I think way back at the draft phase, about three years before legislation GDPR actually came into power, I think we looked at the draft and we could see the direction of travel. And what we didn't do was say, this will never happen. Uh, We actually looked at it and said, this is unstoppable. This is absolutely going to happen, or at least a a very close shape of this. And so we decided there and then to embrace it, Um, which meant quite a lot of changes. And we did a, a root and branch uh, change to our entire business uh, to be able to be ready in advance of the legislation because our process of maintaining data involves basically talking to people on the phone and asking them questions. If at the time of GDPR arriving all of the historical data could, might not have complied then we would suddenly find ourselves at GDPR day with having no data we could safely sell. So the process of doing that research had to start long in advance of gdpr arriving so that we'd gone through and asked everybody the questions with the right script we'd gathered the evidence and the records and so on to be able to prove this if ever challenged and so forth so so yeah we actually started very early and we put in place lots of steps to be uh first in and best dressed, if you like, uh, long before the law actually arrived. But as I say, we very much lent on our experience and the wisdom we gained from the, the faxing challenges before, which was to uh, embrace the possibility of legislative change and, and indeed technology change and to try to wrap ourselves around it rather than trying to sort of sit against it rather like King Canute.
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting way of putting it, the, the wrapping yourself around it idea, because I was going to ask, why do you think Many businesses, and it was many businesses who were caught out by GDPR. But also, many businesses like yourself have that ostrich mindset. And I guess so much of it is because you're—it's very difficult to look at the day, the the, the overall picture of your um, business anyway, much less to look at the overall picture of your market. And I was just wondering how how do you think it you you've made it easier? How did you call up this information on GDPR? How were you more aware? of what was going on this time around than you were last time?
1: Uh, Well, firstly by getting interested and being involved and doing training and being part of seminars and all sorts of other things way, way earlier. Um, I suppose uh, one of the other key benefits I had actually is um, I took it upon myself to read a little bit about the way this was being interpreted and worked on in other countries in the EU. Um, The EU may be behind us now, but actually this change was still going to happen. I I happen to speak a bit of French, having run a business there for a while. But as I say, most of the driving force for this was coming across in English, but it was occasionally really useful to read the German text about how that was being perceived. And so my biggest single advantage or our biggest single advantage there was Google Translate. Um, the ability to look at a web page in German written in a German newspaper about this goddamn data privacy and all of those types of things but actually read it and understand the context in a localised level which perhaps you don't get from some rather grey legal script coming out of the parliament.
0: But in terms of actually spotting it even before you then started to learn about it, what did you learn from the fax example that um, had enabled you to have that that wider viewpoint so that you know, two or three, four years out before GDPR became law, you became aware of it? Because obviously there was a day when you weren't aware of it. And then one day when you were sort of, oh, this is coming. And how do you think you prepared yourself to be in that position?
1: Uh, by, by genuinely being deliberate about the fact we wanted to be alert to technology. We wanted to be alert to legislation. So we were looking at uh, the legislation when there were sort of calls for input and interested parties to have a view and things like that. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's various trade bodies in the UK, like the Direct Marketing Association, who, who did that here in the UK, but that was also happening elsewhere where we were active. Uh, so um, we, you start hearing those first whispers, but it was at that moment, I suppose, where we did things differently. So when the first whispers were around, go back 20 years, we would have said, well, let's wait and see what happens. Whereas on this occasion, we said those first whispers needed to be uh, engaged with. We then had two choices. One was to listen hard and try and figure out the direction of travel. The other one was to try and um, speak a lot and to try and pressure the legislation to take a shape that we preferred. We toyed with both. In the end, we decided we were just going to listen a lot because uh, we felt that it wasn't going to be possible to stand against the challenges that were implicit within it. So we'd better, you know, put our... our best foot forward and actually march towards those problems with um, a clean piece of paper and a pencil ready to try and figure out a new plan for each one of those challenges as they materialize but there are many i mean just to put this in context up until that point core data had been rather unusual going back 30 years core data had launched something called a 12-month license so this is where we would license people to use our data for 12 months we were the first to do that we were really clever But we didn't know we were clever, we did it by accident. We just recognized that if people had this data of going into a marketing campaign, they were going to need to follow it up later and make a, a subsequent letter or a phone call or something like that. So it seemed logical to us that we would need to allow people to use the data for 12 months. But that's because we were marketing numpties. In actual fact, the industry at that stage was working on the basis that you either rented it for one use or you purchased it forever and you had a copy of it, which was effectively yours, not to retrade, but to use forever and ever. So we created this concept of 12 month license, um, but the industry was still using this idea of a data purchase, this eternal license type data purchase. So we eventually, we also launched one of those. It seemed stupid to us that somebody would want to have their data static at a point in time and keep, it, keep using it for five years, 10 years. But nonetheless, there was a demand, so we offered that as well. But when GDPR came along, one of the very first principles is that you should only keep data for as long as you need it. Well, how long is that? And, and so the very first thing is every single one of our clients needed to be able to answer this question to the legislation, to, to the legislators. How long did you need this data? And it was no longer good enough just to say, well, as long as we felt like it, we'll keep it under review, but basically forever. But they needed to have an answer. They needed to have written it down. And then they needed to uh, have policies in place to make sure that happened. And so we decided that we would take it on board as being our challenge to try and help them uh, live up to that expectation. So we completely changed our licensing model, we changed our pricing model, we changed the terms and conditions of all of our arrangements with our clients, and and so it goes on. It was a utter remake from the ground up.
0: And it sounds like because of the work that you do, the the data handling that you do, and the experience that you've just talked about, you've got quite a good viewpoint and perspective on the challenges that businesses are facing in in the UK especially and the challenges that are kind of hitting them every day much like you know dealing with with uh, changes in legislation but in terms of your own business in terms of core data what right now looking ahead now what is the bleeding neck problem you're facing what's the biggest challenge that core data is facing right now
1: well I mean- First of all, I wouldn't want to take off the table technology or law because those things are continually evolving and we continually want to have our head turned in that direction. But um, so so that's a sort of a general principle. I suppose if we're talking about specific to right now it would have to be COVID related um, because COVID changes many things. Uh, It changes the fact that we're doing this podcast electronically rather than sitting in the same room. We're doing it from a distance. And that's true for many other people's workplace where they're now going to be continuing perhaps forever to do some or all of their work from home. Um, maybe people are now gonna have different communicating mechanisms, which involve video calls rather than writing letters. And, and all of those things are uh, culture changes really, rather than a uh, sort of somebody slamming the door on some form of business. But if the whole culture changes, then the products that we offer into that marketplace have to have evolved to be able to meet and hopefully lead people in the direction they're already wanting to go Um, I suppose COVID again we would talk about the state of the economy generally marketing uh, which is where nearly all of our uh, revenue comes from is often very prone to um, jitters within the economy uh, sadly one of my other activities in the past was running computer training and um, that was another industry training is one of those industries that is very quickly hit if people are uncertain about the economy But marketing will often take a a disproportionately large um, setback during that uncertain period in in poor times. Uh, Despite the fact that every textbook says that that's not what you should do, you should double your marketing and market your way through it. In practice, that's not necessarily financially feasible. And it's much easier to cut back your marketing budget because you haven't had to make anybody redundant or stop manufacturing some of your products. So understandably, people are, are inclined to do that. So generally, I think it's gonna be to do with the recovery and the economy coming out of COVID and the changes that may have happened in people's working cultures, uh, particularly in terms of location, which we're gonna have to make sure we're still fitting the needs of customers tomorrow rather than the needs that they had yesterday.
0: Yeah, I mean, the needs of tomorrow immediately brings to mind for me, this idea of the phone that you call at the office isn't now is no longer guaranteed to be the phone that will be answered in the office is it so you even now you know most businesses by now you'd think they've managed it have have relayed those phone calls to a to another mobile to to somewhere else
1: yeah but i mean i suppose it's fair to say that most businesses have done something in that regard but it's sometimes held together with um string and sticky paper um, basically it doesn't work very well and so we are all quite forgiving of the fact that we can find ourselves on a call that sounds like it's using two tin cans and a piece of string uh, or it drops out halfway through or we have to try again the next day or five minutes later that's something that we wouldn't have been as accepting of uh, a year or more ago but now it's just the reality that we're working from home and um the cats just walked over the keyboard, and we're now disconnected. We've got to start again. Um, so, so that's that's part of the reality. But also, I suppose from from my end, as I look forward to the future now about this changing culture, uh, many of the staff of Cordator are working remotely, um, and so that gives me some advantages and some exciting opportunities. It gives me some challenges there as well, just as everybody else. I appreciate that. Um, looking forward to the into the future, it means that we can hire staff anywhere. They don't have to be near our physical office anymore. Um, and so that gives us a better pool of people, a wider pool of people we can uh, attract and recruit. It also though gives us challenges. Now we have to uh, manage them, motivate them, uh, train them. All of these things have to be done at great range. And whilst some of those things are relatively easy to translate to a, a distant arrangement, some of them are very much more difficult. So. Uh, yeah we'll have to keep paying attention to some of the internal challenges as well about uh, the team and about how we uh, face the future there as well.
0: Thinking about that sensitivity to to cultural change and, and the way in which we're looking at the the mechanisms now that we're connecting ourselves have you um, sensed a an increase in the percep- perception of, of value of data so your data which is you know accurate up to date to keep people in contact with the people they want to reach that that might now be more valuable than it ever was and so people might see it more as a investment of what they're doing rather than as it maybe was in the past like you say a cost that was easy to cut because well you know it's just numbers it's just things we can go out on the road and we can meet people who are exposed what's your sensitivity to the to the cultural change that is going on
1: I think all of those other things will still keep happening incidentally. I think expos will still have a role to play. I, I enjoy them myself. It's great to be able to be in a in a single place and meet 20 people face-to-face in a way that perhaps we wouldn't normally be able to do. Uh, and if they're pre-existing clients, it means we're pressing the flesh where otherwise that would have been 20 difficult traveling journeys and so on. So I, I think all of those things will continue uh, and, and possibly even in the immediate aftermath of COVID, the increase. Um, In terms of the perceived value and importance of data, I suppose it's fair to say that that falls into two very clear camps. Uh, I I think generally speaking, the professionals who are uh, thinking about data and what they're trying to achieve with it would probably look at it that way. They recognize that the better the data, the better the likelihood of them achieving their desired outcomes. Uh, I suppose they would also be looking at the risk component of compliance where they, they don't want to be receiving a stroppy letter from the information commissioners saying, what the heck do you think you're doing and have no explanation about how this came about. And just, I met a guy in a pub and he gave me a floppy disk isn't good enough anymore. You have to have a slightly better backstory and you have to have cared about where the data came from and about whether it was fairly gathered and whether it's up to date and so on. So I suppose it's fair to say for those people who are doing it professionally, those things matter and the value is undoubtedly there. Uh, which is good because the costs are also increasing to maintain the data in that way. So it has to be perceived that way or else it doesn't add up anymore. It's also the case, though, that there will always be um, people who can't afford to value it in that way. And data is intrinsically um, copyable. It's a it's type of thing where if I had your data right now, I can, within a few moments, have made many copies and given it to all my friends. And so that data could then be disseminated out into the wild. But then from that moment on, it's never being updated. It is aged and you never gave permission for that to be done. And, and so it goes on. The problem is it can't ever be called back in again. And that aged data, once it's out there can be recopied free of charge. So if you're a rogue and a charlatan selling data and some of them do exist, it does mean that actually you've got yourself a free copyable resource, a bit like pirating a movie or a music track or something where you can just copy it and sell it and pass that on to other people that doesn't mean to say it's any good it may not be as the original movie that disney made but it's still something about that particular cartoon and you know that's the kind of the approach that some providers take but unfortunately there will always be some clients who feel that that's their only reality and therefore they they have to basically get the free or the cheap stuff that they can scrape off the internet or find for 50 quid for a million records you know that we all know deep down inside that can't have been loved and maintained very well But if if it's that cheap, maybe you can save the business in those last days before we go bust, that type of thing.
0: Do you think then there's room for a a drive to make data more accessible, or do you think it's gonna literally stay as a luxury or as an item that you you have to pay a premium for to get the top quality, to get something that's actually useful?
1: I I think there has to be a growing premium. that doesn't mean to say it has to be outsourced to somebody else. It's possible to maintain your own prospect and customer lists and love that enough that you're able to derive all of this value uh, just by training your own sales team to, to have the proper conversations with the clients when they're doing so. There undoubtedly need to be one or two sentences of scripted compliance stuff where no shooting from the hip salesperson promises free holidays. If only I can have your name and address. You know, that, that stuff has to be done properly. But it can be done properly, and there's no reason why that has to be done outsourced. But if you're going to do it in source, you're still paying for it. You're paying for it in training, you're paying for it in oversight, and you're paying for it in salaries and wages. So it's it's unfortunately the case that I believe it's increasingly important, probably increasingly expensive, um, but it is the only way.
0: Well, I think that's given us all plenty of information to digest and and figure out where we're going to go next with uh, looking at our data. So thank you so much, Andy, for um, giving us your time. And unless there's any other words you want to say about reminding people to use data correctly, I think we'll call it there.
1: No, there isn't really anything else I need to add. I only really, uh, just to come back to the concepts that we had from fast preference days of trying to keep alert to things changing, Keep alert to things changing in terms of legislation, but also keep alert to that within data. The data you have today won't be as fit for purpose tomorrow. And all those gone aways that you can see are often the tip of the iceberg. There may all be far more than that, which you can't see. Um, So so be alert to your data and its quality um, because it can lead you down some nasty rabbit holes if you trust it and keep relying on it when it's past its sell-by date
0: treat all your data as imperfect i think is the uh, the
1: way yeah <laughs> data is never perfect so absolutely do that
0: <laughs> brilliant fantastic thanks very much andy really appreciate your time take care no Bye. thank you to andy from core data for coming along on the podcast and thank you for listening to the first episode of our third season on the imperfect brand I think what sticks with me most of all is how well suited data is to talking about imperfections and and what imperfections really mean. Because as Andy was saying, the the crucial part of data is that um, the data you have today isn't going to be as, as up to date as valid, obviously as up to date as, as tomorrow um, will find it. And that in order to maintain your data, not just from a, um, from legislation and keeping in front of how you're supposed to deal with that data and look after it, but also in terms of the data value that you've actually got, that treating it as imperfect, treating it as something that needs constant attention, something to be looked after and, uh, and managed, not just something to be organized and then forgotten about and left in a drawer is, just like everything else really in in marketing and strategy, that these need to be living documents, living parts of your organisation, that you need to um, listen more in your marketing than might be the trend at the moment of just just promotion and talking and, and broadcast. That actually, if you don't listen, you don't know whether you're hitting the mark. You need to treat everything you do as a, as a business as imperfect, whether that's the data you gather, the marketing you do, the products you have. And it's incredibly exhausting to treat everything you do as imperfect, but in a way that's the, that's the exciting part of it is that tomorrow might be um, providing new challenges and obviously the progression of time that then everything you've done yesterday seems less valuable. But it gives you that opportunity to learn more and to increase the value of what you do and that tomorrow could be something better than today because you could have learned more. You could have adapted and taken something on. And so if you don't treat everything you do as imperfect, then essentially you're treating it as a finished product, as something that can never be improved. And that's that's pretty dead, really. That's um, that's not very exciting or interesting. So thanks very much, Randy, to talk through um, what was some really interesting thinking about the fact that uh, concepts like GDPR aren't new and that it wasn't so long ago, as he talked about with his example, that the faxes threw up the same problems. So keeping our eyes on what's going on and treating everything we do as imperfect seems to be the best way to really stay ahead and to stay on top. Of whatever we're doing and whatever we're trying to achieve. Thanks very much, everybody, and uh, see you next time.
1: Forza!